The word of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Four, three, two, one. Four men walk onto a high mountain together, Peter, James, and John following Jesus. They've been following him for a while now. At one time, there were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee down in the lowlands. But Jesus bid them to follow him so that he might make them fishers of men. You've heard some samples of the story ever since. Wherever Jesus goes, he preaches repentance. He calls people to turn to him. He heals diseases. He casts out demons. There's a lot of chatter about who he might be with power and authority like that. People think he's a prophet or maybe the Messiah, while demons call him the Holy One of God. Recently, though, he's blessed Simon Peter for saying that he is indeed the Christ. Shortly after that, though, he tells the disciples that the work of the Christ is to be crucified at the hands of sinners. It's hard to put all that together. The disciples still aren't sure what to think. And now Jesus takes three fishermen, and the four of them go up a high mountain. Three are suddenly terrified for what happens next. Jesus is transfigured before them. His clothes become radiant, intensely white in a way that no one on earth can bleach them. See, he isn't spotlit from the outside. He's radiating light like lightning from the inside, which is something that you and I just can't do. He can because he's God as well as man. He is God of God and light of light. And for this brief time on top of the mountain, he allows a little bit of his divine glory to seep through and shine upon his disciples. Their rabbi who teaches and heals who says he'll enliven by dying. He is clearly more than man. He clearly is the Holy One of God. That's the wonderment of the three. Two are speaking with Jesus, 
namely Moses and Elijah. They've been gone a long time. It was Moses who led the Israelites out of Egypt and Elijah who preached truth and rebuked some of the most wicked kings of Israel when the kingdom was falling apart. The long dead, they are here with Jesus as if with Jesus there is life after death. And while the three are terrified, the two stand with the one as if their sins are no more. Both Moses and Elijah were mighty prophets, bold and courageous men. Both had had bad moments when, while exercising their offices, they asked God to take their lives rather than have them continue on. But all that is in the past. Both, interestingly, encountered the Lord himself on Mount Horeb. And now on this high mountaintop, these two have joined the Holy One of God. Which brings us to the one. We know from the Gospel of Luke that Moses and Elijah aren't trading war stories as if Jesus is a young prophet in need of supervision. They are speaking of Jesus' exodus, his departure from this world by way of the cross. These two mighty prophets are there as servants to the one. Peter doesn't grasp this, although there's no guarantee that James and John are any swifter on the uptake. But characteristically, Peter is the one who opens his mouth and says what he's thinking out loud. He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, that makes sense if the three are equals... But of the three, the two are there to worship the one. They don't set Peter straight, nor does Jesus. No, Peter gets the full Old Testament treatment like Moses and Elijah used to see. A cloud overshadows them, a cloud that closely resembles the pillar of cloud that led them out of Egypt and the cloud which entered the most holy place of the temple. This is God arrived in a cloud of glory, and he declares in response to Peter's offer, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. As usual when God speaks, there's a lot to these words. You've heard the Father say much of this before. When Jesus was baptized, the Father said from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember that when Jesus was baptized, he didn't look divine at all. In fact, although John declared that the Messiah was there, no one could pick Jesus out of the crowd because he didn't look any more special than anyone else. He looked just like one more sinner in a crowd of sinners because He was there to take their place, to shoulder their sin, to start the trudge to the cross with their iniquity. Now the Father declares to Peter, James, and John, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The disciples have had their share of doubts and questions and bad moments while following Jesus. And remember, they've recently been thrown into confusion by his declaration that he will save by dying. Before they must face that horror of the crucifixion, though, they have this day of confirmation. 
Jesus radiates divine light, and the Father says, This is my Son. Furthermore, the Father adds, Listen to him. Listen to the word he speaks. When Jesus stops looking like the light of the world in human flesh and looks like a dead man on a cross, his word remains the same, and his word gives light and life to men. There's a little bit more than that, though. Remember that the Father is responding to Peter's statement, let us make three tents. Another word for tent is tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a tent temple where God dwelt with his people during the Exodus. This is why when John speaks of the incarnation in his gospel, he writes, the word became flesh and dwelt literally tented among us. When Peter says, let us make three tents, the implication is that Moses and Elijah are equals of Jesus, which means that Jesus isn't God in the flesh. Thus, the father corrects Peter. They don't need three tents. In fact, they don't even need one tent. God doesn't dwell with his people in a tent, in a tabernacle anymore. He dwells among them in human flesh. So, when God the Father responds to Peter and speaks from heaven, the effect of his words is, You want to see a tent? I'll show you a tent. This is my Son, who dwells among you to save you. And then, then the three look around and suddenly, they see Jesus only. No overshadowing cloud, no Moses and Elijah. In fact, Jesus tells them to tell no one what they have seen until he, the Son of Man, has risen from the dead. So now they're back to the plain, old, ordinary-looking Jesus who's going to keep going from place to place, preaching repentance and casting out demons, and making his way to the cross. There at the cross, there will be no radiating light. In fact, the world will be plunged into darkness as he dies on the cross for the sins of the world. In other words, except for this brief transfiguration, the disciples are stuck with the same Jesus that you're stuck with, the one who speaks his word and serves and suffers for sin. Or, to put it a better way than stuck, the Lord blesses you with the same Savior that the disciples have. Sure, they saw him speak and serve and suffer, but you hear him do so in his word, and faith comes by hearing, not by sight. Remember, at the transfiguration, the father didn't thunder, Hey, look at my boy! He commanded, listen to him. Not only that, but the gospel is not that Jesus could radiate light and terrify his followers. The gospel is that he humbled himself, concealed his glory, and died on the cross to take away your sins. In fact, he takes away your sins not by zapping you with radiant beams, but by enlightening you with his word. Where you wander from his will, he doesn't blaze with furious glory to terrify you back to the straight and narrow. He admonishes you with his holy law so that you know what you ought to be doing 
and that you hear your need for grace. And that is one of the reasons you listen to him. This hearing is important because by nature, you like glory. Like everybody else, you would much rather be blessed with a good day than a rough one. It's much more attractive to think that following Jesus is going to mean an easy and carefree life because you walk in the footsteps of the King of Kings. But you walk in the footsteps of the King who leaves the transfiguration and dons a crown of thorns, who endures trouble and opposition and suffering for your salvation. And if your king suffers such things, then it should not be a surprise that you do the same as you follow in his footsteps. If you think that being a Christian in this world is all about mountaintop experiences where Jesus flashes some glory and shows off his divinity, then you're going to be disappointed with Jesus about 99.9% of the time. It's not because he's disappointing you. It's because you're not listening to him. Repent. Repent and listen because the Lord forgives by speaking. The one who healed the blind and the lame still speaks to heal hearts and souls. By his word of absolution, the transfigured one forgives your sins and says, Let there be light within you. He pairs his word to water and enlightens you in your baptism, chasing sin and darkness away. He gives you his body and blood in the sacrament so that when he raises you on the last day, you will see him as he is in glory. Listen to him, because it's by his word that you see the light. It is the same for the church as for each Christian. In our epistle reading for today, St. Paul bids you as a congregation not to lose heart. Do not underestimate the pull to turn from the preaching of the gospel to other messages instead, messages that people claim will make a difference in a dying world. It indeed will look foolish to many that, while so much is falling apart, we continue to proclaim the death of Jesus for the sins of the world. But the Apostle points out that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, so it's no wonder that they do not understand. The God of this world, says the Apostle, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is where there will always be the temptation to think that we need to add or subtract from the gospel to get people to understand it, as if we sinners and our brilliant ideas can defeat the veil of unbelief. By the grace of God, we listen. We listen to Jesus so we know that what lifts that veil of those who are perishing is the gospel of Jesus itself. That is why, as the Apostle says, we renounce disgraceful and underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We speak and sing and confess about Jesus, crucified and risen again. As we do so, we and all can listen to him 
and it is by that word that faith is strengthened and unbelief is driven away. The transfiguration is a glorious moment. It's a glimpse of Jesus' glory and a little peek at heaven. Now, we descend from that mountaintop to Ash Wednesday in the beginning of Lent, trudging towards the joy of Easter and the resurrection. And really, that's a metaphor for your life in Christ. For now, in this world, a life of Lent in anticipation of the resurrection on the last day. But whether Lent or Easter, Christ has already gone this way, and he is present to sustain your faith by his word. Listen to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.